welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, an ESRC-funded postgraduate research student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tapiel, a trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Melanie Levy, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland and Adjunct Lecturer at the Bookman Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, with pleasure. So, uh, hi everyone. Uh, uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, your invitation to, to participate in your Feminist Law podcast. It is such a great pleasure for me to talk to you today about my work. So, as you said, I'm an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law and co-director of the Health Law Institute uh, at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. I'm also currently directing a research project that is financed by the Swiss National Science Foundation on the increasing wave of regulation, the role of law as a public health tool in the prevention state. And so in the context of this uh, uh, project, I have uh, five uh, brilliant PhD students that I uh, mentor and have the chance to uh, work with. Uh, I'm also an adjunct lecturer at the Buchmann Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University, where I teach a course on uh, health law and uh, human rights. And uh, I've also just uh, uh, joined a few weeks ago the Swiss National Ethics Commission on Human uh, Medicine. So very broadly speaking, my research interests lie at the intersection of law, health, uh, technology, and uh, society. And then maybe on a more personal note, beyond my professional life, I'm a mom of uh, three small boys. I like to travel when possible and also enjoy very much uh, outdoor uh, activity. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about your journey into law um, and what you specialize in now? I know you've touched on this um, and why, please. Yes, so I always wanted to become a legal scholar pursuing research in law in an academic uh, context. So my career choice really was uh, quite uh, easy for me. So I'm not a lawyer. I've never tried to pass the bar exam and I do not uh, practice the law. This is not the part that I'm uh, interested in. I'm really interested in uh, the theory of law. Uh, why a legal scholar, you might ask. So I always been fascinated by law as a social construction that uh, uh, expresses, underlies the perceptions of values and the balance of interests that are uh, dominant in a society at a given time. Uh, I think the law is an essential uh, tool for the functioning of a society, a tool that shapes, that constructs, and sometimes also oppresses people, individuals, interactions uh, uh, within society and Finally, the law is also a tool for fighting against uh, power relations and injustices. And so th these are the, the elements that push me towards a career uh, in, uh, in law and in legal academia more specifically. Uh, I've traveled quite a lot during my career in law from Switzerland to the UK to Canada and then to uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, and I think it's the intellectual debates, the different schools of thought and also the interactions with students, with scholars in these different institutions uh, uh, that I had the chance to attend that have shaped me as the professor and scholar that I uh, am today. Uh, this is also the advice that I'm now giving to my students uh, here at the university to travel, to attend courses, classes, events at different law schools and beyond uh, the law, of course, I think this exposure to diversity of ideas, of concepts, of opinions is very um, essential. 
today I specialize in, in health law and pharmaceutical law, food law and uh, gender law. I'm particularly interested here in the, in the role of the state in these areas and the, the public-private dichotomy that becomes very visible in these areas when it comes to questions of power and uh, uh, responsibility. Uh, an original aspect, I think, of my research in health law in particular lies in my interdisciplinary perspective, which allows me to make links between the social sciences, the human sciences, uh, such as the sociology of law, the history of medicine, health economics. And I think it's quite important to realize that these areas provide much needed data, insights into health and disease. And what I am doing in my research is to make a connection between scientific evidence and uh, uh, legal theory. So I think this is really one of the distinctive features uh, uh, of my research. I think especially in the context of health and medicine, it's important to uh, integrate these empirical data into our normative assessment. And so uh, my critical legal analysis uh, extends beyond the, the sort of traditional limits of what I would call uh, legal uh, black leather law doctrine. And I, I try to develop a more critical legal uh, scholarship. Yes, totally. Um, thank you very much for that very extensive overview. Um, and that leads me very nicely onto my next uh, point and question, um, which is about your recent article, which you published in the Michigan Journal of Gender and Law, titled Surrogacy and Parenthood, a European Saga of Genetic Essentialism and Gender Discrimination. Um, so before we delve deeper into the topic and into the content of your paper, um, I'm wondering, what is your take on surrogacy and parenthood? So this is a very interesting uh, question. I think as a legal scholar, I'm interested in surrogacy and parenthood for several different uh, reasons. First of all, I think it's an interesting case study. Uh, through surrogacy and parenthood questions, we can uh, realize the interaction between biological, social, and also legal uh, definitions of uh, parenthood or the parent-child uh, relationship. So this is one reason. Then I think I'm interested in, in, in surrogacy and parenthood because uh, it's an area where we can see how technologies and services such as surrogacy shape and impact uh, uh, the definitions of uh, uh, legal parenthood. And then, of course, beyond the theoretical lens, I'm very much concerned by the legal and also personal uncertainty of, of couples, of families, of individuals and their children that have gone through a process of uh, cross-border uh, surrogacy. And so I'm also, of course, very interested in sort of how to deal with the uncertainty on, a, on an individual uh, level. Uh, an important part of the, the literature on surrogacy and parenthood, which I do not deal with in my research, uh, focuses on, on the status and protection of, of women, uh, vulnerable women in many instances who work as the uh, surrogate. So this is one part, uh, one important part of the literature that I'm not uh, covering here. Okay, thank you for that. And um, yes, I completely agree. The cross-border uh, uh, element is so fascinating, and we'll go on to talk about this a little bit later. Um, in the meantime, can you describe for us what a feminist stance looks like um, in terms of uh, surrogacy and parenthood, please? So I think what is interesting here is that a, a feminist uh, position or stance on surrogacy and parenthood is uh, multi-layered, it's complex, as uh, I think feminism uh, includes a very broad range of perspectives, and there's no single feminist stance on uh, uh, surrogacy and parenthood. I would uh, argue, I think there are several key uh, 
points that many feminist legal scholars consider here first and foremost, I would say it's about autonomy and choice. Uh, uh, feminists often emphasize the importance of reproductive choices, including the decision to become or not to become a parent or to become or not become a uh, mother. So surrogacy arrangements from this perspective should be, uh, of course, entered freely and with full uh, concept. So the consent, so the surrogate's uh, autonomy over her body, over her choice is very much uh, uh, important here. Uh, a second feminist concern is, uh, I think, uh, about exploitation. So there's this concern about potential exploitation of surrogates who may be from less privileged backgrounds and might be coerced by financial or economic necessity uh, rather than free uh, choice. Uh, another feminist concern in the context of surrogacy and parenthood is uh, about commodification. So some feminists worried that the surrogacy might contribute or increase uh, uh, the commodification of women's uh, bodies and also commodification of uh, uh, children. Uh, another area of feminist concern in this area are parental rights. So feminists might uh, advocate for clear uh, and just arrangements regarding parental rights uh, uh, and responsibilities. Uh, this includes, for example, ensuring, making sure that the surrogate has a right to change her mind uh, uh, and also securing, of course, um, the intended parent's uh, legal relationship uh, uh, to the child. So this is one area where uh, I'm uh, very much interested in, in, in the, the legal ana analysis, this legal uh, relationship between the intended parents and the, the child. Uh, then another area of concern, of course, is uh, sort of the international and socioeconomic power dynamics that we see here. Uh, as you probably know, with uh, surrogacy, there's a, a global uh, dimension that you have to consider as very often uh, uh, surrogacy crosses international uh, borders. And so feminists here explore the implications of, of wealthy parents traveling to developing countries to hire a uh, uh, surrogate with a less uh, privileged uh, socioeconomic uh, background. Uh, maybe a, a final uh, element that I can mention here that is interesting from a feminist perspective is about the diverse fam family structures. So uh, feminism, I think, recognizes and supports the uh, diverse fa family forms, family structures, and of course, surrogacy can enable people, individuals who might otherwise be unable to have children, to found a family, uh, uh, to pursue uh, their uh, right to found a family or have children and so in that sense uh, surrogacy is of course a service that uh, allows uh, this type of alternative family uh, to be uh, to take place and also then uh, hopefully to be uh, legally uh, protected so as you can see uh, i think there's no again single feminist on surrogacy and uh, parenthood, uh, uh, I would argue here that uh, in general, feminist legal scholarship uh, uh, strives for an approach that uh, respects the autonomy and the rights of, uh, of women, of course, also considers the welfare of the children involved. And I think a feminist legal approach is also sensitive to the complexities of power dynamics and, of course, uh, uh, socioeconomic factors that play a role in these uh, surrogacy arrangements. Yes, I totally agree. It seems like there's a, almost like a juxtaposition of themes um, that all contribute to this feminist position or feminist stance on surrogacy. And the main takeaways that I, I you know, 
got from your um, explanation just now is, I suppose, the concept of use and abuse of bodies, um, but also consent, uh, financial pressure, and generally just a holistic approach um, and making sure that, you know, surrogates are being considered persons with their own rights um, and not being abused in that way for their services. Um, so that's a fascinating overview, thank you. Um, next, I would like you to expand, please, um, on the term genetic essentialism and gender discrimination. They're both concepts that you use in the title of your article. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to explore them in the context of surrogacy for our listeners, please. Yes, so I think uh, these terms genetic essentialism and gen gender discrimination are two of the, the, the very original concepts that I uh, developed in the paper and uh, I'm trying to connect them uh, to uh, the context of uh, surrogacy. So it's important here also to clarify what I mean by genetic essentialism and uh, gender discrimination. I think uh, both terms uh, um, arise in general in discussions about uh, value and roles that are assigned to individuals based on genetic ties and uh, gender norms. So genetic essentialism is the belief that genes determine key traits or characteristics of individuals, including uh, their abilities, their behavior, uh, their rightful place uh, in uh, society. And so in surrogacy, uh, genetic essentialism might uh, manifest itself in the overemphasis of the genetic link between the attended parents uh, and uh, uh, the child uh, in a feminist critique, gen genetic essentialism could be challenged for uh, reinforcing uh, notions of uh, inheritance or lineage that prioritize genetic connections over the emotional and social labor of uh, uh, child rearing and social uh, parenting. And so in my paper, uh, I highlight the empirical evidence coming from the European Court of Human Rights case law that documents the power of the genetic link pushed by the court's reasoning and increasing reliance on genetic evidence and biological relatedness in its recognition of legal parenthood in non-traditional families. So we have this phenomenon that all of a sudden the court relies on this genetic link in order to recognize legal parent-child relationships in the context of uh, cross-border uh, surrogacy. Another element that, is, that I highlight and develop in the paper is about gender uh, discrimination. So in general, gender discrimination uh, refers to the unfair or unjust treatment of individuals based on their uh, gender. Uh, in the context of surrogacy, uh, gender discrimination can be seen, for example, in the expectations and roles that are imposed on uh, women. Uh, surrogates who are always women may be subject to discrimination if they are valued only for their reproductive capacities, for their bodily services, if I may say so, and if they're not fully recognized for their humanity and autonomy. Uh, in my paper, uh, I highlight a very different and a, I would say new form of gender uh, discrimination, intended genetic fathers benefit from direct, direct legal recognition of the foreign birth certificate, meaning that women have to go through a very lengthy additional procedure to actually adopt their own genetically related child, whereas fathers, genetic fathers can do so through a simple uh, administrative recognition of the birth certificate. Uh, through this adoption requirement, the court, I think, seems to endorse an additional element of power, of control over the recognition of legal uh, motherhood, an element, as I said, that is not imposed as such on legal fatherhood. Uh, this element of power, of control in recognizing legal motherhood uh, 
I think can hardly be justified based on protecting the child's best uh, uh, interests uh, and imposing an additional evaluation as to the genetic mother's fitness to be a legal mother constitutes, in my opinion, and this is what I show in the paper, discrimination based on gender in violation of Articles 8 and 14 of the European Convention of Human Rights. So in brief, in my paper, I critically analyzed the European Court of Human Rights role in creating and perpetuating genetic essentialism and gender discrimination in its case law on recognition of legal parentage in cross-border surrogacy cases. Yes, thank you very much for explaining that. And that's totally what I um, understood when I read the article and the main takeaways I got as well. Um, and the fact that, yes, the states are almost, you know, abusing um, of their of their powers in terms of implementing or, you know, setting up additional hurdles for women to be recognised as a legal parent or a legal mother. Um, so um, because you mentioned Europe in your paper and just now the European Court of Human Rights, um, can you please explain to our listeners the state of the law um, and general stance of, on surrogacy in Europe, which I appreciate is a wide, wide area to cover, but um, because that's kind of the title of your article, um, if you could get, give us a general overview, that'd be really helpful, please. Yes, so what we see in Europe is, uh, uh, as you said, uh, in many instances, it's cross-border uh, surrogacy cases. The cross-border element is a forced uh, element since most domestic legal frameworks in Europe still restrict the creation of non-traditional families uh, through assisted reproductive uh, technologies based on an old-fashioned idea or concept of bionormativity or nationalist arguments. And so what we see is that uh, these restrictions on uh, the use of assisted reproductive technologies and services such as surrogacy forces both same-sex and also heterosexual couples to travel uh, abroad uh, to have access to these technologies and to have access to uh, surrogacy services. So it's really the state, the very traditional restrictive state of domestic law in the context of uh, family creation and access to uh, assisted reproductive technologies and sur surrogacy, which uh, pushes these uh, individuals, couples and families uh, uh, to travel uh, abroad and have uh, access to uh, surrogacy, for example, in states where this is either legally possible or also just uh, uh, tolerated. Uh, by traveling to these states, by doing so, these individuals, these couples, they create uh, social realities of families that do not fit into the traditional family law background or framework as maintained in a domestic uh, uh, context. So once the baby is born, uh, these individuals or couples, they travel back home and then they struggle to have uh, birth certificates uh, recognized, to establish legal uh, parenthood in a domestic law con uh, context, uh, to obtain, for example, citizenship and claim benefits, the social welfare benefits, for example, associated with uh, the parent-child uh, uh, relationship. And so what we see here, what I show in the paper is, is that this, this juncture between social practice on the one side and domestic law on the other side creates a situation of legal uh, limbo for these parents and children. And of course, uh, a situation of legal uncertainty or of legal limbo can be very uh, problematic uh, in terms of legal protection uh, for both the parents and uh, uh, the children uh, involved. And so what happens since the, uh, the law is usually very slow to adapt to uh, societal or also technological de development, assisted reproductive technologies, 
confronted with uh, uh, inaction by legislators, they take their cases uh, to court, they try to clarify their status through judicial adjudication. So this is where the judiciary gets involved in conceptualizing non-traditional family forms and uh, debating their uh, legal recognition. And so in my research, uh, I focused on the role of the European Court of Human Rights in the context of these families created through cross-border uh, surrogacy. What is interesting here, I think, is that despite the globalization of reproductive technology and the rise of cross-border fertility services, the legal concept of parenthood, of family, and of family life remains really a domestic law affair, as we see in a, in a huge variety of legislation throughout the, uh, Europe. And so what is interesting to see, and this I show in the paper, that uh, contrary to this very domestic law or contextual claim, the European Court of Human Rights has recently taken a more active uh, position stance, bringing about a, what I would argue, a certain Europeanization of these legal concepts of uh, uh, parenthood uh, and uh, uh, family. And so in the court's recent case law, we can detect two developments that I discuss in the paper. Um, first of all, the court has pushed for domestic authorities to rectify the situation of legal limbo of these families meaning that the court has pushed uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, law frameworks to recognize that these families exist, that, that uh, these legal parent-child relationships uh, exist. But, and this is the second part of the development, in parallel, the court has filled the legal limbo, the legal limbo with uh, genetic essentialism, and the court has also allowed, unfortunately, for gender discrimination when recognizing uh, legal parenthood in the context of these cross-border surrogacy cases. Yes, totally. And we're going to explore that uh, further. In today's Feminist News Roundup, Sky News, together with The Independent, has found that there have been nearly 20,000 complaints of sexual abuse in mental health trusts across England since 2019. Also in today's news roundup, the UK Women and Equalities Committee has found that a quote culture of silence, end quote, in the music industry leads to women being made to sit next to their abusers at events. In Australia, a photo of Georgie Purcell, a member of Parliament, Victoria's State Parliament, was altered in a photo pu published by Nine News, which saw her breasts enlarged and midriff exposed, sparking outrage online. The New York Times reports that the United Nations will be studying reports of sexual violence, which are said to been taking place during the October 7th attacks in Israel. In the UK, Legal Cheek has reported that the Bar Standards Board annual report on diversity has shown that almost 60% of people barristers are women. Also in the UK, the BBC has reported police officers from Thames Valley Police made derogatory comments about a woman when watching a video of her experiencing a seizure. The officers were reported by a student who was later dismissed. Thames Valley Police have reported the incident for an independent investigation following the BBC. In Canada, five hockey players from the World Junior Championships are facing sexual assault charges, which are said to have taken place during the 2018 Championships in London, Ontario. Again in the UK, a serving police officer in Devon and Cornwall has been charged with rape. The incident took place in Exeter while the now suspended officer was off duty. Meanwhile, France's National Assembly has approved a bill that would enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution. It passed by a margin of 463 votes, with 483 in favour and 30 against. 
Finally, the Commissioner of the NHL has said it is not necessary that hockey players charged with sexual assault be suspended from the league without pay. The charges he refers to are those of the five well junior players charged with the 2018 sexual assault, and the players are, according to the Commissioner, nearing the end of their contracts. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.